I hope the Lord doesn't come back before we finish. I'll be very upset. <laughs> I know some of you won't, but... <laughs> uh, so, Revelation 14. and we're, we're in this kind of patch in the book of Revelation where, where chronology really goes out the window. It's, it's an interlude period. And we looked in, in really the interlude beginning there in, in chapter number 12. And we looked like a history of the Jews and all the kind of players on the chessboard, if you like, are put out. Um, we looked in Revelation 13 at the, uh, the beast of the sea and the, the beast of the uh, earth, the Antichrist and the false prophet. And, you know, you're really pulling out of the chronology because you remember in the chronology of things, we're actually uh, waiting for the, the seventh uh, trumpet to uh, unleash the next sort of judgments in the order of the judgments during the tribulation period. So we've been, we've been just taking this little um, interlude, if you like, and, and looking at various things throughout history. And uh, again, Revelation chapter 14 is one of those ones um, where you know, you're dealing with a, a particular overview of a time period and, and maybe a little bit on. So we'll have a look at it and, and not really place it in the natural chronology. It's, it's events that happen during the tribulation, but in our, if we step back into our narrative outside of the interlude, they, they're not things that are about to happen. They, these things come later, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at it. So it's chapter 14 is, is put into three parts, and I'm going to break it up, and we'll have a look at it this evening, Lord willing. And uh, hopefully the Lord can uh, bless us this evening with something from his word. So let's pray, shall we? First of all, ask the Lord's blessing upon our time together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for, again, the privilege to come to this place this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the liberty we have. And again, we're reminded of everything that we have and what the cost that was paid by those that laid down their lives as we think about this Remembrance Sunday. And Lord, as we think about even future times in the great battles that lie ahead, I'm thankful, so thankful, Lord, that you have left the book of Revelation for our benefit and our profit, that we can see truly, Lord, that you are victorious. Uh, we know the beginning from the end, and we know that there's nothing can stop the sovereign will of the sovereign God, and we thank you for that. But Lord, I pray as we open this book uh, this evening, Lord, that you just help us um, bring things to mind that will be beneficial to us in our walk today, Lord. We want to take application from this where we can. And the greatest application we can take from the book of Revelation as we look into it is that people are destined to face the wrath of God unless they know the good news of the glorious gospel of grace. So, Lord, help us to remember as we read these things that the time is of essence, as it were. We are to be about your business until you come. So, Lord, I pray you would help us to be a people that look to this book, not just to make it some academic exercise, not just to uh, fascinate upon this book, but, Lord, to truly, uh, Lord, take it in and apply what we learn. Help us to know who we are as the church today and what our purpose is. And not let us be blinded to that. We're here to be the ambassadors of the good news. Those that go forth, share the gospel. We're to be salt and light. And Lord, I pray you would help us to do that. But for tonight, Lord, I pray you would give us hearing ears, open minds, soft hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Right, so Revelation 14, we're going to have a look through it. I'm going to divide it up into three little parts for you. And, uh, oh, can, come on, technology. need to click on it for me so it's alive. There we go. All right, so first of all, we're going to have a look at the Song of the Seal. So this is verses 1 to 5. Let me read it for you from Revelation 14, verse 1. And the Word of God says this. I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps, and they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled by, with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they were without fault before the throne of God. God. So here we're dealing with the, the seal, and here we have their song, and a couple of things that we want to do here, because there is debate, would you believe, would you believe that? There's the debate amongst those that write the commentaries, and are the great theologians, and all this, the scholars, and all that sort of stuff, they can't agree on what's going on here. So we'll, we'll read through, we'll have a look, and I'll give you my view. And again, you may disagree, but as I've said plenty of times before, when you get to heaven, you'll find out Pastor Kevin was right, I was wrong. We'll not worry about it. We'll not worry about it when we get to heaven. Anyway, so let's have a look. What do we see here? First of all, we're trying to get a bit, a little, a bit of the context. We want to see the people in, in view. And uh, first of all, we have uh, a lamb. Verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood. Now, again, just carrying forth a symbology, not trying to pull anything out uh, in that isn't in there and just really continue on in, the, in how we've uh, appropriated these uh, analogies or these uh, pictures. Um, who do you think the lamb would refer to? Lord Jesus, right? And, and, you know, we could say, oh, the lamb's maybe something else. But again, in the writing John doesn't see fit under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to say another lamb or something and describe the lamb and say this is not the lamb that we've seen, i seen earlier. He just says it's the lamb. So for me, we don't need to go any further and just say, well, this is, this is Jesus um, because he is the lamb of God, no doubt about it. And John has already used that imagery. So um, we'll, we'll stick with that. We'll say that this is Jesus. Then we're introduced... Um, just at the tail end of that verse, with him 144,000. Now, have we met 144,000 before? Yes, we have. Revelation chapter number 7, the 144,000, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes. So, there's no reason to go anywhere else here than this is the 144,000 of Revelation 7 that we've been introduced to. If you remember, they were sealed of God, weren't they? So here we have the 144,000 having his father's name written in their forehead. So um, personally, I don't think we need to go any, any 
much further than this is the 144,000 that we met in Revelation 7. So we've got the Lamb, we've got the 144,000, and we are um, saying that this is the same 144,000 because the, the, the number, you know, is too coincidental just to be a random number, it, it, that it would be 144,000 that are sealed in Revelation 7, that are given that special uh, mission from God to be Jewish evangelists. And again, I absolutely believe that Revelation 7, the 12 tribes of Israel refer to Jews because I don't ever see anywhere in Scripture the church being divided into 12. I don't actually see anywhere in Scripture where, where Scripture tells us that the church and Israel are the same, same thing. I, don't, I just don't see it personally. So these are the 144,000 Jews, I believe. So that's the, that's the people in view. We've got the Lamb, we've got the 144,000. Next thing we want to think about is the place um, so we've got the people, but what about the place? What, you know, where is this? And this is where most of the debate rages. Okay, so there's two views. One view is that this is a heavenly scene, and another view is that it's an earthly scene. And there are arguments for both. But, since I'm preaching, you're going to get my view. And you can go away and look, and you, as I said, you can, you can uh, study it for yourself, come to a different conclusion, and just uh, at some point in the future, when the Lord deals with you, you'll find out you were wrong. So, <laughs> I'm, only jo- I'm only joking. I'm not really joking. I'm right. No. So, what's the place? Notice what it says, though. And again, it says, A lamb stood on the Mount Zion. So, you know, people will say, well, this is, this is the uh, heavenly Mount Zion. This is the New Jerusalem in the heavens, and this is what's in view here. And the reason they'll say that is, well, if you go on to verses uh, 3, you hear the new song. talks about, you know, before the throne of God, and we, knew the throne, we know the throne of God is in, is in uh, heaven. And we've seen that in Revelation uh, chapter 4, chapter 5. Um, it says they were redeemed from the earth, therefore... Verse 1, it must be a heavenly scene. Personally, I don't think it is a heavenly scene. I think it's an earthly scene. Uh, why do I say that? First of all, it says the Mount Zion. I think that's pretty clarifying that, that it's Mount Zion in view. Um, secondly, um, we're, we're, we've just been dealing with the beast of the earth and, and the, the beast of the sea. And when you're dealing with Israel and, it, and it's eschatology shall we say it's it's end time stuff it's very land focused with israel it, it really is um because they are and as been said before israel is an earthly people with earthly promises the church is a heavenly people with heavenly promises that's a distinction between the two so in the covenant so israel's promised a land the portion of land from the euphrates to the nile They've never, never had that in the fullest sense. But it is a physical land-based promise. The church, we're not promised land on this earth. We do have amazing promises. Um, Far above and beyond, I think, personally, what Israel has been promised. Now, we're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about just uh, promises and blessings and rewards from the Lord based on what he said. And I've said it before in the, ch- in the church, and I'll say it again. If you think that you have had a hard deal compared to what Israel's getting in terms of promises, spend some time and read Romans 8 and understand what it means when it says that we are to be co-heirs with Christ. You want to, I can't find a better promise in Scripture than all of that. Co-heirs with Christ. 
It's immense. It's immense. That's why the Lord says store up treasures in heaven. And so uh, it says the Mount Zion, definitely. Also, um, I think when you look at verse four, uh, chapter 14 and you see verse 2, it says, I heard a voice from heaven. I think that marks a little distinction there that he's looking on earth and he sees, hears a voice from heaven. I think also in Revelation chapter number 7, 144,000 are, are viewed as separate from the multitude of martyred tribulation saints. So if you look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, Just water fresh. Just <laughs> get Revelation uh, chapter 7, verse 9. So, just after the, the sealing of the 144,000, it says, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, palms in, in their hands. So, there's a real distinction between those that are the evangelists and those that have received the reward of the evangelists. I think the 144,000 personally are, when they say they're sealed by God, I believe that means they're preserved by God from the beginning to the end to go about God's uh, mission. Um, so I, I do believe that, that when you read the first few verses here, you're pointing to Mount Zion, literally Mount Zion. And, and that brings us to our next point. We've looked at the people, we've looked at the place, but now we want to look at the point in time. So if this is Mount Zion, as I, in, on, in Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, as I believe it is, where are we in the chronology? What time is this pointing to? Well, if the Lord is stood upon the Mount Zion, in the chronology, the only time this can be referring to is the parousia, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes back. This is really taking us to, to, to Armageddon. This is taking us to the great battle. That It's not really a great battle. The Lord comes back and he crushes the enemies of Israel. And it, it's uh, literally, and I don't mean this derogatorily, it is literally a bloodbath. It's a bloodbath. We're going to look at this tonight. And, and if we think about this then, so if we look in, and you have to try and revelation at times, you know, you can't always be dogmatic about things, but you have to be uh, educated about things and try and put things together, try and piece things together as best you can. And, and if I start to do this with the chronology and the point in time, if this is the... Uh, Mount Zion on Jerusalem and the Lord is there and the 144,000 are there. This points us to the end of the tribulation period where the Lord has returned. I think this helps us a little bit when we get into uh, Revelation 4 and chapter 3 and we look at the, the song that they sung. So it says they sung a new song before the throne, before the four beasts and the elders and no man could learn the song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. So there's just sense that it's before the throne. Now could this be before the throne of heaven? Yes. It could also be before the throne on earth because there is going to be a throne on earth. That is promised in scripture through the Davidic covenant that there will be a throne in Jerusalem that the Lord, the Messiah, would rule and reign from for an eternity. And it says in scripture when the Lord comes back, he comes back to his throne. 
So he's seated at the right hand of the Father now. That's where he is. But there's a throne that is going to be occupied by the Lord. This is the millennial kingdom as we hold it to. So um, it could be that this is still the throne of heaven. It could be that this is the throne of, of, of David, as it were, possibly. But it says that these, these uh, 144,000 have a new song. And then it says, which were redeemed from the earth. And, you know, that redeemed from the earth, um, we, can, we think about that and we think straight away, we think about physical salvation or, or spiritual salvation. But again, you know, when we've looked at Revelation through, um, this, this concept of the earth also relates to worldliness. It literally can mean worldly ones. So these 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth, um, it goes on then in verse 4 to describe their character and their conduct, and we'll have a little bit of a uh, look in this. So what does it mean when it means redeemed from the, the earth? I, I don't think that this is talking about necessarily their, their uh, spiritual salvation, although it can be, but I think it's their uh, impeccability. They were redeemed, delivered from worldliness. Remember, these are the 144,000 Jews that are firmly entrenched in what is secular Judaism. It's not true Judaism. Because they've missed their Messiah. They've, they've missed it. And uh, here they're sealed by God. They're redeemed, delivered from worldliness. And it says in verse 4, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goeth. They were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Their first fruits is an Old Testament concept in, 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 in the Levitical feasts. And it really means that the best of, now, they weren't the first fruits of salvation, absolutely not, but they were the best of in this company. And what are we dealing with? Uh, Israel. And it says in verse 5, that in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault and before the throne of God. So, you know, again here, picturing that sovereignty of God, this elect company, and uh, John Phillips has a nice little outline about them, and he says that Revelation 4 and 5, First of all, it deals with their conduct. They're not defiled. Then it deals with their, consecra- their consecration. They follow the Lamb. And I, I love this. Whether, wherever he goeth, whithersoever in the KJV, he goeth. And then we have their calling. They were the first fruits, meaning the very finest. Then their conversation says their mouth was found with no guile. And then their character without fault before the throne of God. This is certainly a special bunch. This is definitely an elect company who I believe have been sealed by God. They are delivered from worldliness and they are the ones that take the evangelistic message to the world during this period. And when we get to Revelation 14, I simply think that we're here at the end of that tribulation period Their work has been done, as it were. The Lord has returned, and now they're singing a new song before the throne. And Revelation 4 and 5 tells us about their character, what it truly means that they were redeemed from worldliness from the earth. So the song of the sealed, I believe, is a song that's sung at the end of the tribulation period. And it's amazing just, you know, regardless of whether you view this, uh, this Zion, Mount Zion as in, in heaven or on earth, what we, we can agree on is that there's a lot of singing taking place. You know, heaven's a place of singing. It's a place of beautiful singing. There'll not be a bad note in heaven. 
Not one. Not one. There may be a few tomorrow night, the choir practice, but in heaven, it's a place of praise and a place of worship. Here, this song is sung, and no doubt it's a song of victory. It's a song of praise to the Lamb that ultimately sits upon that throne, the heavenly one. So there we have the song of the seal. I believe this is, as I've said, takes place at the end of the tribulation period when Christ comes to take up the throne that is promised in the Davidic covenant. And that's one of the things that, you know, I love when we get to the book of Revelation. We start to see these things being finalized in terms of the promises. There's no open ends. God doesn't promise something and then forget to answer that promise and fulfill it. When you get to the book of Revelation, and when I, when I honestly, personally, I believe you get everybody in the right place, it all comes to a natural order. There's, there's nothing left unfulfilled. God is doing all that he said he would do for the church, for Israel, for his covenantal promises. In the foundational Abrahamic covenant, he's fulfilling the land, the seed, and the blessing. We looked at that, those covenants that come out of uh, the Abrahamic covenant. And here we see in Revelation 14, I believe, the culmination of that tribulation period. Next then, let's have a look. We'll move on before time runs away with us at the announcement of the angels. So here we go into Revelation 14, verse 6. And John says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and and worship him that made heaven and earth and the seas and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen and is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed him saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive the mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, who receive the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a loud voice saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works to follow them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So what's going on here? Well, let's have a go and see what we can come up with. So here John has this other prophetic vision. He says in verse 6, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. So the first thing in this section is we see that great news is declared. What's that great news? 
the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So, the everlasting gospel is being preached here. Now, here's the question. Here we go with the theology. The question is, what's the everlasting gospel? Number one. Number two, is it the same as the gospel we preach today? Or is it different than the gospel that we preach today? So, what's the answer? Hands up, anybody who wants to have a go. Now, before you answer, a lot will be determined on your definitions. Right? So there's a phrase, he who uh, defines uncontested wins. What does that mean? It means if I get the definition in and nobody contests it, that's what we'll go with. But that's often the case. I mean, in any kind of interaction that you'll have with somebody today especially, you can be talking about the same terms. You can talk, be talking about salvation. Say, you know, are you a Christian? And as Bible-believing uh, Christians, to me, that means are you born again? Have you come to the Lord in repentance and faith? Do you know truly that you have a home in heaven, etc., etc., that you're a sinner, saved by grace, not of works, etc., etc.? That's what it means to me to be a Christian. But that could mean something completely different to somebody else that claims to be a Christian that's caught up in a works-based system. You could be talking about you know, salvation. That can mean something. You could be talking about sanctification. That can mean something to somebody and not to you. So we shouldn't have to, but for a lot of the terms that we use, we have to define what we mean by that word. So when I say to you, gospel, what is that? Define it. Now you're going to say to me, possibly, it's the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, right? But the gospel, gospel means literally what? Good news. Good news. So, is the gospel, the everlasting gospel, necessarily going to be the same as what we define the gospel as now? Maybe, maybe not. We're going to have to have a look at it. We're going to do a little bit of work on it. Because we have to define these things. Now, here's the thing. What I'm about to say to you is not at all in any way saying that there are different means of salvation. There's not. There's not. But there are in Scripture found different gospels, different good newses. The one we have today in the church age is Death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel of grace. Before Jesus went to the cross, there was a gospel, a good news being preached. What was it? Repent for the kingdom is at hand. That's good news. That's part of the gospel. Here we get to the book of Revelation and we're dealing with this time where there's the judgment of God's coming down and the angels who are never engaged to preach the gospel of grace as we know it now are now preaching this gospel of the, this everlasting gospel. Um, the angels have never in, in, in recorded truly preached the gospel of grace like we do now. They declared Christ, but here it seems they do preach 
the gospel of the government of God. So what, what am I trying to say here? What am I putting this together? That scripture does talk about different good newses. Ultimately, they are tied into one good news. And that good news is not a what, it's a who. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I said to you previously that, that when we say, you know, the gospel is the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ, that is the gospel of grace as we're portraying it now. And, and, you know, the gospel of the kingdom was portrayed, was repent for the kingdom is at hand. Now, it's not changing the mode or mechanism of salvation, but they are subsets, if you like, of the gospel, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the good news. Right from the start, Genesis 3, he was promised, the Redeemer was promised. That's the gospel. Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain. That's the gospel. The incarnation is the gospel. The resurrection is the gospel. The ascension is the gospel. And the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is the gospel. He is the gospel. He is the one by which all men are saved. He is the pinnacle of it all. Start, middle, and end. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it. He's the everlasting good news. From start to finish. It's him. But when we talk about the gospel of the kingdom, it's in relation to part of his program. Repent for the kingdom is at hand, which means what? The king is here. The good news is, 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 is said in Genesis 3 that there will be a promised redeemer. And since that point, the people of God have looked for the redeemer. They've looked for Messiah and they've missed him. They've missed him. But we know who he is. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the good news as we know it now. This is the church age. That we can look back upon Calvary's cross and point to him. For the Old Testament saint, they couldn't look back to Calvary's cross. They had to have simply faith in the Redeemer, the overarching principle of the good news of God, that there would be a Redeemer, a Messiah, and faith in God was the only mechanism or means or mode of salvation from the beginning to the end. That never changes in the overarching principle. There's only one way of salvation. But how that that's... Uh, talked about, how that good news is talked about. Now we're in the last days. Now we're in the place where the angels are preaching the everlasting gospel. They are saying here that judgment is coming. God is fulfilling his program. We are getting to the end of time where God is going to step in. He's going to deal with it. He's going to establish his kingdom and he's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Eternity is coming. And this is the gospel that is preached and it's good news for some. And judgment for others. Exactly the same as every other aspect of the gospel has been. From the beginning of time all the way to now. It's good news for some. But for the rebellions. It's judgment. So it says in verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is Come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the water. So these angels aren't 
preaching uh, the message of the gospel of grace, but they are preaching the message of the government of God, the fulfillment of those promises in Isaiah that the Redeemer would be the ruler of those promises that there would be an everlasting kingdom that was set up that no man could shake or move or break down. And this is at a time when you know the world is in turmoil, that there's false kingdoms being set up to take the worship of God and these angels go out and preach the everlasting gospel the king is coming to take his place and judgment comes with him so the point I'm making from this and by a little bit of an extension is don't just water down the gospel understand it is the complete redemptive program of God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ it's too magnificent to be watered down he's too magnificent to be watered down What a saviour. What a saviour. And this eternal gospel, it's eternal in its significance. That's why it's the eternal gospel. And it's universal in its scope. And these angels preach this everlasting gospel, this message that the judgment has come upon the earth, that the creator, the sovereign God, is in control. Then verse 8, so we've got this great news delivered. And then verse 8, we've got a great city destroyed. It says, Babylon has fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, this is Babylon, this great uh, city that's been set up as this place of uh, political and economical uh, worship of the religious system of the beast. And the news comes out that it's fallen, it's fallen. Now, we could spend all night on Babylon. We're not going to do that. We'll look at Babylon in chapter 16 and 17. We'll come back to it. But for now, we know that this pinnacle of the the beast system, you have Jerusalem and you have Babylon, and you have these competing, uh, throughout history, this competing thought of the place of God's name and Babylon, the place of Satan's name, if I want to call it that. At war with each other spiritually, theologically, economically. But the system is doomed, and we'll look at that. When we get there, and verse 9 to 11 tells us that the worshippers of that system are doomed also. And notice it says in verse 10, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. This is anybody that has received this verse 9, any man that worshipped the beast in his image, this is what's going to happen. Verse 11, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who received the beast in his image, and who received the mark of his name. This is great scriptural verses to go to when you're dealing with somebody that wants to teach you about the concept of annihilationism. That actually when you die, it's nothing that. So a prime example of this are friends of Jehovah's Witnesses. And you say, well, what does torment forever and ever mean? For something to be a torment, you have to be conscious for it, right? I've just thought of an illustration here. I don't know why I've thought of this, but I'm going to share it anyway. You may or may not relate to this. Married couples, you'll, you'll relate. So if you have a snorer in your house, 
Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. So, I've heard it here first. Dale's a bit of a snorer. Is she, no? Is she a proper piggy? No. <laughs> he's back. He's backing out. He's backing out. But so so so. so <laughs> oh dear. It's gonna be. That's gonna be a journey home tonight. I'm telling you. I'm glad it's not me. <laughs> so, if you've got someone that's a snorer, and <laughs> that, are you a bit of a snorer, Paul? No. Is he a snorer? Can you hear him from your bedroom? Yeah. Oh my goodness me. <laughs> so, so, if you're trying to get asleep, and you have somebody that's snoring their head off, and you can't sleep, let's call that torment, yes? Right? <laughs> torment, it is. No, it's not very clear. So, bear with me. This, this hopefully illustration will pan out. For the person who is snoring their head off, are they tormented? No, they're not conscious of it. For the person that's awake, that's torment. If you're asleep and they're snoring their head off, no problems. It's only when you wake up. It's the same concept to an extreme when we're dealing with eternal punishment. For it to be torment, it has to be conscious. You have to be aware of it. For it to be true uh, everlasting punishment, there has to be some aspect of being aware of it. So when people come along and, and tell you that you know hell isn't a, a real place for a start, or you know God would never eternally torment anybody, that you'll not be conscious for that, you go to scriptures like this and say, well, it does say forever and ever, and they'll have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image. There are other scriptures that you can go to, but the concept is true. You know, For it to be torment, it has to be conscious. Otherwise, it's not torment. So here we, we see the result of those that fall for that false religious and political system that give their allegiance to the beast. They are doomed, doomed, doomed. And you know, this world has given itself over to the beast system. But they will meet their end. You know, this is what the psalmist says. Why does it look like the wicked flourish, Lord? Why does it look like they prosper? Why are you not doing anything, Lord? God's going to do something. Revelation uh, chapter 14. The doom upon Babylon is announced. And the doom upon those that have fallen for that system. So there's a great city destroyed. Then there's a great harvest determined. Verses 14. And 15 says, And I looked, and behold, a white uh, cloud. Upon the cloud was one that sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And there came another angel out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat in the cloud, Thrust thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So again, you look at this, and uh, you see this, uh, Behold, a white cloud and one upon the cloud, one sat like unto the Son of Man. So again, some will say, is this an angel? Um, personally, I don't think it's an angel. I believe it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the terminology that's, that's used. Back from Daniel, uh, in the book of Revelation as well, it says, one like unto the Son of Man, also having on his head a golden crown. Diadem, not Stephanos. Kingly crown, authoritative crown, and his hand a sharp sickle. What is is 
the one that sat upon the cloud encouraged to do, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. What is this harvest? This is a harvest of the wheat and the tares, I believe. This is a harvest at the end of the age. And those that are harvested up are harvested up onto judgment. We're going to have a look at this uh, next. But I want you to notice the harvest is determined. The harvest of the earth is ripe. This is in God's prophetic timeline at his time and his time alone. That is part of the sovereignty of God. And we have to, we have to be content in God's sovereignty. Why has God not come back now? Because he's sovereign and now is not the time. But, but Lord, but Lord, look at the wickedness. Come Lord Jesus. He's sovereign. And when he comes, it will be the right time, the perfect time. Why? Because it's his time. It's his time. Now, by application, we can apply that to anything that we're calling upon the Lord to do in our lives or whatever it may be. God's sovereign, and we've just got to wait at times. But there is this harvest uh, there, and that leads us to our third and final point, and I will run through this very quickly that's the reaping of the rebellious this is verse 16 and he that sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven he also having a sharp sickle and another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire cried with a loud voice to a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle saying thrust in thy sharp sickle gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe and the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, gathered the vine of the earth, cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse brindles, bridles, by the space of a thousand at six hundred thurlongs. So what's going on here? Number one, the earth is reaped. This brings us back to Matthew 13. I've touched on this a little bit. The parable of the wheat and the tares, where there is this great reaping. Also it says the vine is gathered. The Bible mentions three kind of aspects when you're dealing with vines. Israel was God's vine. Uh, Christ is the vine. Today, John 15, 1. But the world system is also a vine, the vine of the earth. And this is a vine that is ripened for judgment. And this judgment is coming here in Revelation 14, verse 19. And then it says the wine press is trodden. And this brings us back to Old Testament scripture. This has been foretold. God said this was going to happen many, many years ago. Turn to Joel chapter 3 quickly. Joel chapter 3, it reads this, verse 13 to 14. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the folly of decision. Folly of Jehoshaphat. For the day of the Lord is near in the folly of decision. Then Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 to 3 says this. Who is this that cometh from Eden with dyed garments from Bosra? This that is glorious in his apparel, travelling in the greatness of his strength. I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in my anger. And I will trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain 
in all my remnant. What some view here is the fast destruction of human life, literally a bloodbath. And this blood will flow outside Jerusalem in the valley of decision, the valley of Jehoshaphat. But this time is not the blood of our Lord upon Golgotha as we looked this morning. This time it is the blood of his enemy. Because when he comes the second time, he comes as the righteous returning king. Not as a suffering servant. Not as the one that's just going to take the, the, the mocking. He's not going to be spat upon. He's not going to have his beard plucked. He's not going to be whipped. He is coming as judge and the fury of the righteous anger of God is poured out when Christ himself is the one that goes and deals with the enemies of God's people. We don't have time to look in that, but Christ does this. He's coming. And the winepress was trodden without the city and the blood came out of the winepress even to the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. When this king comes back, there's going to be a reaping of the rebellious and they're going to pay the cost with their life, both physically and spiritually, because that's the king who's coming. Now, on that cheery note, (laughs) we are going to leave it there this evening. We've run out of time. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to pick up in Revelation 15. We're going to get back into the narrative and we're going to see the seven bold judgments, the seven vile judgments as we end out this uh, age of the tribulation period and look to the return of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly